Hi, listeners. It's Jana. Just two quick notes before we get into the show today. The first is that in our conversation, we do touch on the topic of suicide. So if you are someone who has struggled with suicidal thoughts or someone you know is struggling with those thoughts, please reach out for help. I will list some resources in the show notes for today's episode. The second note is that many of you know our podcast is super DIY, which means that we occasionally have some uh, wonky sound situations. And in this episode, the first part of it, the sound is a little bit off. So we just ask your patience. It does get a lot better as the episode goes on. We're working on some new solutions for our long distance recording so we can continue to have our fantastic guests on the show who don't live here in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. And here's the show. So one of the really big things that I've done is I want to teach my children that you can love again when you've had a loss. I'm remarried. I have a very loving husband, and it's, it's really okay to love again. Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and then suddenly everyone left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with people working in the grief field. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. In 2000, Doreen Wiggins began having vivid dreams that her husband was going to die. These dreams, combined with a session with an intuitive healer who confirmed her fears, prompted Doreen, who was already an accomplished surgeon, to seek out training in supporting grieving children. Four months later, she flew across the country to attend a week-long institute on working with grieving children and families. On her way home, she was unsure exactly how she would put this new knowledge into practice. But by the time her flight touched back down in New England, she ended up hearing about Friends Way, a program for grieving families that was about to start in her home state of Rhode Island. Over the next seven years, Doreen would go on to become a facilitator in their grief support groups, a member of the board of directors, and co-chair of their annual fundraising event. Then, in 2009, while skiing in Colorado, her husband died suddenly due to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy on the chairlift he was sharing with their 13-year-old daughter and two strangers. Doreen's fears, which started nine years earlier with dreams of her husband dying, had become a reality. It also brought her to a new understanding that life is bigger than what we see in front of us. Devastated and still needing to parent their five children, Doreen turned first to therapy and then yoga, finding a lifeline in what would become a daily practice. Doreen recently completed training to become a certified yoga teacher. Her interest in yoga and her training as a medical professional sparked her interest in learning more about how grief affects us physiologically, emotionally, and spiritually. Doreen, thank you so much for being part of the show today. Thank you for having me. And it's kind of a tradition here on Grief Out Loud to start with taking some time to talk about the people that we're grieving rather than jumping right into the grief. So could you talk a little bit about your husband? Like, What was he like as a spouse and as a parent? Sure. Well, my husband's name was Michael Wiggins. He was a true visionary. So he was an orthopedic surgeon, 
But in 1999, way ahead of the curve, he he was the first one in Rhode Island to have electronic medical records. He had a whole imaging suite, including an MRI. He helped build a surgery center. So he was a very dynamic entrepreneur in medicine, which is rare. He also had this warm enthusiasm that some of his patients describe when you were in the room with him, you felt like you were his friend. As a dad, we were extremely busy and we worked as a team. We had four kids, then a fifth one that was just under two when Mike passed. And you always felt well taken care of. So the kids were into snowboarding and traveled. If they needed something, they just had to like let him know that they needed it. And he would make sure that he did some research and make sure that that equipment was what they needed for the type of sport that they were doing. So he was very dedicated. As a husband, he was very loving. He was very opinionated. (laughs) I think sometimes what happens when someone passes away, you romanticize that person a lot. It's almost like they have a saintly like stature. I mean, he was a very human, but he was my partner in everything. We exercised together. We built practices together. Around him, I definitely learned to be a better person because he was so kind with his words and very, very loving and genuine. You know, many people who are grieving will describe experiences that go, they go beyond what they can rationally understand. So whether there's dreams or premonitions or events that might feel like a message or a connection with the person who died. And then they also worry that people are going to judge them as maybe being really out there with those experiences. You had a number of these moments and events both before and after your husband died. Can you talk a little bit about those? I have, and yes, I will, because I think it could be helpful for other people. In February of 2000, I started having very vivid dreams that Mike was going to die. They were so vivid that they were really bothering me. And I didn't discuss that with Mike about the dreams um, at that time. But my sister had given me a gift certificate to see an intuitive healer. And I went to see her. And when we were sitting in our meeting, and she said, oh, you're going to get married again. And I said, I'm never getting married again. I love my husband. I'm never going to divorce him. And she looked at me in the eye and she said, he's going to die. My stomach dropped. I, I, my throat closed and I was like, no, he's not. What can I do? He's not going to die. You have to help me. You could see the future. What can I do to change this? And she said, you can't change fate. I went home and I said, to, now I am a surgeon and my husband is an orthopedic surgeon. And I said, Mike, I've been having these dreams and I saw this person who told me that has a gift and she told me that you're going to die. I said, we have to do something. I said, I have four kids. I have to learn how to become a grief counselor and you have to go to the doctors. So at the time he did, he went to the doctors and In June of that year, I went to the Dougie Center in Oregon, and he came with me. And while I was in the day program, he was hiking mountains, and we actually saw Sting on that trip. We had a great time. 
and I got trained as a children's grief counselor. And Mike saw a doctor, and he was healthy. And when I got home, I got off the plane, and I was reading the Sunday paper. I was catching up on what had happened, and I saw an article that Jenny Kaplan was coming to Rhode Island, opening up Friends Way to help kids with grieving, and it was based on the Dougie Center. I was like, this is surreal. So I called Jenny, and that's where we began. Now, he did have a near-death experience that summer. In August, he was um, roller skating, and my sons were skateboarding. They were on a half pipe in Nantucket, and he fell back, and he hit his head, and he started seizing, and he was unconscious. And then he was at the hospital. He got discharged from the hospital. And then three days later, when he and I were alone in the kitchen, he once again fell back. I caught him. He was unconscious. He wasn't breathing. And I did CPR on him. But he made it through that event. And I really thought that that was the life event. You thought after that you were in the clear. I thought I was in the clear. And I even went back to the psychic And she reassured me that he was going to be okay. When I was doing CPR on him, I had a weird sensation. I almost felt like his soul went by me, went by my, by my head level. You know, me being the doctor, I was saying I wasn't a good patient advocate, meaning I probably should have advocated that we left this vacation island (laughs) and went home. And I said, he can't die. We're supposed to have a fifth baby. And at the time, we weren't planning a fifth baby. And I even said to myself, I had like this internal struggle. We're, we're not planning on a fifth baby. <laughs> so um, seven years later at the age of 44, I got pregnant unexpectedly. And then when he did die in 2009, you know, after probably a, a significant amount of time, but I felt like I got an extra nine years. Like I felt like it was a gift that, I had that opportunity because during those nine years, you know, relationships flourish, children grow, you you get to have wonderful experiences together, good or bad, things happen and you're with each other side by side. So I felt a real deep sense of gratitude. And you said that that took a while to get to that place. It did. That's not what you were thinking in the first days and weeks and years. No, because as many people who go through a death experience or a tragedy, it was a very complicated death. And it was complicated in that we were once again on vacation, sort of. Our kids were in a national, the national snowboarding contest, two of our children. We had two in college, and we had a, fifth, uh, a soon-to-be 15-year-old son and a 13-year-old daughter. A two-year-old, we were in Colorado, and my husband was at Breckenridge with my daughter, Olivia. He called me when he got there, and we were having the whole snowboard team over for dinner that night, and he sounded great. You know, I was like, honey, can you get the potato peeler, and we need paper towels. He said, I love you, and he he said, I'm just going to go with Olivia on the chairlift, and we're going to start our day. It's beautiful here. The sky is blue. And he got on the chairlift with Olivia. And within a minute on the chairlift, he died. Um, and 
there was Olivia, Mike, a gentleman and his wife. And, you know, snowboards are heavy. His body started slipping off the chairlift. So he hung for seven minutes till they could get to the top with my daughter holding one side and the gentleman holding the other arm. And my daughter didn't talk about it for at least well over six months. They performed CPR in front of her. They cut off all of his clothing in front of her. They shocked him in front of her. And I was at a condo 30 minutes away without a car and a two-year-old. As a mother, having my 13-year-old daughter, who actually had had a broken arm four weeks prior to this, uh, just the pain and suffering that I had as you know, a loving parent, no matter where I was trained as a grief counselor, no matter that I was a physician, watching her suffer like that, and all the children, very, very complicated and deep. Yeah, that, that training doesn't protect you when it's your own children. It doesn't. And I was angry for a long time because I was with my husband the day before we went running four miles together. Why didn't he die with me? Mm. You know, why did, he, why did this child have to be part of that? And a funny part, also, you know, funny now, like kind of it gives me chills, is she was the only baby that he delivered. So she was the fourth baby, and we had a friend who was an obstetrician, and he let Mike deliver the baby with him by his side, of course. And at the funeral, you know, I said, Olivia, Daddy was there for you on your first breath, and you were there for Dad when he took his last. And then on the day that Mike died, when you finally got to the mountain, you also had a really powerful experience. So there were a few things that happened right around his death. And what you're, what happened was I was away from the clinic when Mike died. And I actually had to call 911 and ask a police officer to drive me there in the back seat without a car seat to a different county. But it was in the back seat of that car, police car that I was told that my husband, they stopped working on him. When I walked to the clinic, the door opened automatically. And from above, inside this building, a million golden shimmery things, millions came down from the ceiling and entered me. It felt like the most loving energy. I've, I've never felt that before. The thing that came close is actually when I had my first son, Stephen, and I, you know, my first child, and I looked at that baby for the first time. That kind of love is is what I kind of experienced. It lasted for about three months. And I had to be careful because I felt love for everyone. (laughs) And it was very a vulnerable time, but it was like this protective energy. And once I crossed that threshold, I was going to face the most catastrophic thing that had happened in my life. I was saying goodbye to my life as I knew it. And my children were just broken and suffering when and crying. And my daughter said, Mom, you go in there and you, you fix this. But there was nothing to fix. He was, he was gone. We couldn't fix it. Did you so, have a sense of what 
that experience meant to you in the moment or reflecting back on it? So the other thing that had happened that day, and you know, I think reflection is a great word because in that moment, I didn't know what was happening. But I knew I was very present in my mind and in my being because I made very good decisions. I talked clearly and concisely. I expressed my love to Mike. I talked to him. I was very present, but I had this other altering experience. About 16 weeks after Mike died, I received the record of what happened from the coroner. And the coroner had stated that there was a Thomas Wiggins sitting beside Michael who helped hold his body. I ended up calling the coroner and the police and I was like, Thomas Wiggins, you, I want to find that man's name because my daughter isn't telling me the story and I want to know what happened. My last name is Wiggins. And they said, no, his name is Dr. Thomas Wiggins and he's from North Carolina. And I was like, someone's sending me signals that this is was supposed to be like there's a greater experience about us living than just our physical form from the fact that I was having dreams from the fact that someone confirmed it from the fact that he had a death experience with me doing CPR and him a Dr. Wiggins beside him and now finding that there was a Thomas, a Dr. Wiggins beside him. It was just too surreal. It, it kind of helped me because one of the things that I struggled with after besides everything that I was thinking about my children and my own suffering, but I was like, is Mike okay? I would pray. Like, are you, are you okay? Like I want I felt this great need to take care of him. And I, I would talk to him and I would send him love every day. Like, are you Okay. Doreen, I'm wondering with all of these experiences, these sort of synchronicities and these sort of windows into a realization for you that life is so much more than just our physical embodiment, how did that understanding or those experiences become a part of how you were grieving? When Mike died, I knew I really loved my children. I knew I had purpose in this life of my my profession, but it was like my cells died within me. You know, I, I went through a very deep depression and and I wouldn't go on medication because I know f- through my experience of being a physician and also my some of my other training that, you know, if I went on me- medication, it might delay this full grieving process. And I if I didn't feel it, I didn't want to blunt that experience because, you know, it was real. <laughs> this is where I was. Um, and I knew I had to grow from it. But there were still some points where I didn't want to be on this earth. So I was I was suffering. I was one foot in, one foot out, one foot in, one foot out. I was seeing a therapist because I needed help, of course. And the therapist, he said, you know, Doreen, he's like, you've taken a huge blow right to the core of who you are. And your children have lost their father, who is everything to them. But if you took your own life, those kids would never survive. And overnight, it was like a snap in that moment. And I was like, I got to be here. So I started figuring out the way that I could be here. And for me, 
I started doing a daily practice of yoga and I was off work for three months and I did yoga maybe once or twice every single day because I needed to be grounded in, in this physical body and through movement, through breathing, through shutting down that noise in my brain and that suffering, it gave me something else to focus on so that I could be present. The yoga was really the thing that helped you stay tethered to this earth. It did. And what else grew from that yoga was I would have friends because, you know, people just really wanted to help. They had very generous hearts and they said, what can we do with you, for you? I said, come to yoga with me. So there were, I built a community because my community before Mike died was, was my husband and children. I didn't really have time. And the community came around me. Neighbors brought me dinner and my office, they shared that responsibility. And then I had this other community of women that really were there. And once a week, we would have dinner. You've gone the next step now. You've just completed your yoga teacher training and will be bringing the practice to other people. Yeah, so I've always been someone who tries to dive a little bit deeper. And I probably wanted to have some better understanding because really my worlds clashed. Here I am, an allopathic physician who's all about evidence-based medicine. And here I have this metaphysical world. Yoga brought those two worlds together because when people go through trauma or if they have little traumas over time, trauma can lodge in the body. It could cause all sorts of problems related to stress, whether it be heart disease, GI, back aches, headaches, depression. With yoga, with the movement and the breath, it helps integrate our intuitive self, our vagus nerve, and also the centers of our brain that store trauma, the amygdala and the hippocampus. It helps decrease that activity and those neurochemicals that cause depression, that might cause psychosis, that might cause more suffering. It helps our brains and it helps our body. You know, when you breathe and you focus on calming down your heart rate, it's more coherent. So it helps us sort of break out of that rigidity that can come when we do experience, like you mentioned, a large scale trauma or small traumas over time. Uh, we can sometimes get locked into a particular emotional response or a particular way of perceiving events in our lives moving forward. And it sounds like yoga and breath, the combination can help open that up. Absolutely. And now there's research to support that. Bessel van de Kolk is utilizing yoga in his treatment. When you also look at what the vagus nerve can do, and Stephen Porges is looking at, he came up with the polyvagal theory, and it talks about how the, the basic instincts that we have, many of them are unconscious. So you have a situation, uh, you're in a life-threatening or perhaps a very bad situation just a tr very traumatic place, and you shut down, you freeze, you can't move. That's our most basic primal response. It's, un it's an unconscious response. We can't control that. It's the body's protection of the self. The second part of the vagus nerve 
is our fight or flight. So we either avoid something or we fight. But the third part of the vagus nerve is really the myelinated aspect and that's an integration and that's where compassion is aligned. That's where doing good things for others. Through research, they've shown the more you can work on building that higher level, that myelinated aspect of the vagus nerve, it could suppress that sympathetic response of aggression, depression, closing within. So almost the idea of by working with the vagus nerve, which is that really big nerve, right? That runs from your gut yes. all the way up. Yeah. By working with it and strengthening it, it, it can. It sounds like from what you're saying, it could almost be a bit of a preventative in terms of helping people better withstand or make their way through challenging experiences. Absolutely. So our vagus nerve is the 10th cranial nerve and it it's connected to the amygdala and the hippocampus. It sends signals from the body. So it's not, when we think of cranial nerves or the way at least when I was taught when I went to medical school 30 years ago, is mainly our cranial nerves send signals from our brain to our body. But what they found in research is now the vagus nerve, 80% is from our body to our brain. So where in our body does it go? It goes to our eyes, where we make eye connection with people. It has to do with the tone, the tone of our voice. It has to do with our gag reflex, our breathing, our heart rate, our liver, our intestines. It has to do with the gut instincts. It's amazing where it goes. It's really our body's intuitive connection with our brain. And maybe that's where the, the heart of intuition lies. I had a lot of guilt when Mike died that I was having these thoughts that, you know, he was going to die and then he died. Did I cause that? You go through many different aspects of thought processes and mental formations when something like this happens. Did I cause this? You know, I was really dwelling on that. It made me look into, well, what's a fear-based thought and what's intuition? A fear-based thought produces a lot of emotion, but when you have intuition or an intuitive gut feeling, it causes you to initiate action. And my response was, you need to see a doctor and I have to be trained as a children's grief counselor. So I really do believe it was intuition. Doreen, as we come to the end of our conversation, you know, as we've talked about experiences you had leading up to Mike's death and then sort of your way of connecting with yoga and how that's led to more research on the vagus nerve and the ways in which we can process grief and trauma through our bodies. What are the ways that you remain connected to Mike? My children are living and breathing. Half of their beings are Mike. So I see, you know, this dynamic person that's died, this loving person, but now I see opportunities in my five children that he continues. So that's my biggest thing. The other aspect is, is that I've continued to participate in Friends Way, do talks on post-traumatic growth and the research that we discussed, because maybe someone in the audience is suffering and maybe just a word or something I say can help them on their journey. And I see myself in the future when I retire from surgery, practicing yoga, 
maybe writing about my experience, just extending my heart in any way possible to help others. Well, thank you, Doreen. And thank you for taking time to extend your heart today to me and to our listeners out there. Well, thank you for having me, Jenna. And listeners, it sounds like we should all stay tuned to hopefully a book by Doreen in the future. So keep your eyes out for that. No pressure, Doreen. (laughs) And listeners, this is episode 99. It's really hard to imagine we've come this far with Grief Out Loud. So our next episode, the 100th episode, will be a thank you to all of you who have participated as guests and as listeners over the years. If you are new to our podcast, you want to hear any past episodes, you can find us online at dougy.org or any other way that you get your podcasts. So as always, thanks for listening and I hope you'll join us again next time.